Man, thank you, band and singers and choir and congregation. What a great, great start to what's going to be a great day. We're in Matthew chapter 5 today. If you have your Bible as we get into our Bible study time this morning, Matthew chapter 5. We have been all month long beginning to study the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We'll be here for about nine weeks in total, but the month of January has been focused on Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, we've been studying what we call the New You Resolution. In January, people set New Year's resolutions. We're setting a New You Resolution. Not what do we want to be different this year, but how do we want to be different this year. And here's what we've been learning. If you reach inside your bulletin and grab your sermon notes, here was the overview that I gave you on January 12th. I said, we're going to learn how your spiritual DNA determines your spiritual blessings. And last week we talked about how spirits not only determine blessings, but the Bible says that our spiritual DNA actually determines our spiritual actions. Today we'll learn number two, that if you can change the way you think, you can change the way you live. You need to write down on your sermon notes with that pen we gave you the words six times. Six times. Six times in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you've, you've always thought this way, but if you can change and think this way, it'll change your life. And you've always heard that you were supposed to do things this way. But if you will change and do them this way, it will change your life. Six different times in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you've always heard it was this way. But I'm telling you, if you can change the way you think, you can change the way you live. And then we're going to look at today, number three as well. Jesus is going to tell us through Matthew chapter 5 that until you learn the spiritual heart behind your religious habits, why we do what we do, why we believe what we believe, there's going to be a disconnect between you and God. Jesus, you're going to find him say there's a lot of people doing a lot of right things today, but it's not, it's not really out of a heart for God. It's just kind of who they are and what they do. But there's a disconnect from God. So today we start in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. Our ushers are going to come down the, the, uh, the aisle. Uh, they've got Bibles. If you need a Bible today, every Sunday we open our Bible and read it. We've given away more than 600 Bibles just like this when people need them uh, during church. So if you need one, raise your hand. If you forgot one and you just want to use one, or if you don't have a Bible and want one, put your name in this and just take it home with you. Um, it's our gift to you. Thanks for hanging out with us today. But in Matthew chapter 5... Starting in verse 13, the last two weeks we've studied very carefully Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, the entire basis for the Sermon on the Mount is found in two words, really three words, in Matthew 4.17 and Matthew 4.19, if you're brand new to this series. In Matthew 4.17, Jesus speaks his first words of ministry in the book of Matthew, and the very first word that Jesus speaks is the word repent. It means change. It means do things differently. The first words out of Jesus' mouth in the book of Matthew in ministry were you need to change. In Matthew 4.19, he added two more words to those, and he said, follow me, which literally means become like me. So in Matthew 4.17 and Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, you need to change the way you're living to become more like me. The natural question is, okay, Jesus, how do we do that? The answer is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. How do we change our life 
to become more like Jesus. We've been talking about that for two weeks, but today we, we just talk about the transition that has to happen in the way that we think and in the way that we live. And Jesus says those are connected. If we can think different, we can live different. And there's really only two things that I want you to do today, and I think they're, they're both going to be very easy to remember. I think as you leave, you'll remember these phrases. Whether or not we put them into practice is a different thing, but I think they're going to be really easy to remember. Jesus says if you're really going to change the way you think, so you can change the way you live. Here's the first thing that has to change. You have to make the move from head to heart in your Christianity, in your religion, in your understanding of God, in your pursuit of God, in, in your concern for God. It's got to move from your head into your heart. Now, the problem with this, especially for people 2,000 years ago in Israel, was that the Jewish culture had worked very hard to master the action, really in spite of the Spirit, or rather than the Spirit. They had worked so hard to try to do everything that God told them to do that their focus was many times on the action rather than the Spirit behind the action. We had 16 people from our church at a mission trip in Israel two months ago, and they still are doing this. As a matter of fact, I believe probably mo the modern-day Hasidic Jews living in Israel today would work us under the table a hundred hours to one in their devotion to perfecting the habits of being religious. And if you go to the Western Wall or the, 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 uh, what they call the Wailing Wall there in Jerusalem, you'll see kids as young as three and four to old men in their 80s who, who are going to to perform the actions required of them in Scripture. If you walk into the tunnels of the Western Wall, there are thousands of prayer books that Jews from all over the world come to memorize so they can quote and bow before the wall. And you look at what they're doing, and the crazy thing about it is the spiritual emptiness you can feel. Now, the habits and the actions are playing out right in front of you, but the spiritual emptiness, it, it's, it's a bunch of actions without a spirit connected to it. As a matter of fact, they pray at that wall because that's where they believe God's spirit is. The, the closest place on planet earth that's still standing to the Old Testament holy of holies where the spirit of God is, is the western wall. That's why they pray there. The, the walls of the temple mount, many of them are original. The reason they pray at the western wall, they believe that's the closest they can possibly get to the spirit of God. So they have all these actions, they have all these habits, because they're trying to find the Spirit, but they don't have it. And you can see, if you, just, if you just study literature a little bit, the move from the Torah, which is the Old Testament law, to the Talmud, which were Old Testament teachings, and this is getting probably a, a little deep for some of you, but I'll try to understand, I'll, I'll try to explain it, was a sign of this move that actions were more important than Spirit. You see, Moses came in the Old Testament, and he gave us the first five books of the Bible, which became known as the Law, and then was later expanded to the Law and the Prophets in the entire Old Testament, or what's called the Hebrew Bible. But as time passed on, two things were passed down in Jewish families, the Torah and then the teachings about the Torah, what the Bible says, and then basically what the Bible says to do. And what had happened is, as Israel had moved away from God and moved away from Moses, they started focusing more on what to do than the actual word of God. You might remember when Jesus said, you forget the laws of God or you ignore the laws of God to follow the, the laws of man. The Talmud was basically a book that says, do these things. The Torah was a book that says, here's God, here's you, here's how your relationship works. The, Tal the Talmud was just a list of things. And they thought, if we can just memorize the things, if we can do the things, 
we can be close to God, but it really wasn't about God. It was about the things. So Jesus in Matthew 5, he starts listing the things and says, you, you have, you've perfected the action without the spirit that goes behind it. He said, you know, we've told you don't murder. And last week we said that our spirit determines our action in general. We talked about good spirits and the Beatitudes. But Jesus said, you've heard that you're not supposed to murder and you don't murder. That, and that's great. You, you shouldn't murder. Um, but Jesus said the action behind that, the spirit behind that is a spirit of anger. And Jesus said, I don't want you just to be people who don't kill each other. I want you to be people who really learn to control your emotions. And you've forgotten that. Jesus said, you teach and you should teach. You shouldn't commit adultery. And you shouldn't commit adultery. I'm not saying you should commit adultery. What I'm saying is the spirit behind that is I don't want you lusting after people that aren't your spouse. So you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And that's right. But I'm telling you, it's not, you shouldn't just pursue the actions but the spirit behind the actions. He said, I'm telling you, there's a section here about you've been heard it said that you're only allowed to offer promises by such things. So Jesus talks about the actions of breaking your promise. 2,000 years ago in Israel, they didn't have signed contracts, so they basically had promises that counted versus promises that didn't count. And basically, depending on what you promised, you either had to keep it or not keep it. So if, if I tell Danielle... Um, I promise you that on Valentine's Day this year, I'm going to get you flowers, and we're going to go out to someplace nice to eat, and I'm going to get a babysitter. Uh, and like I, like, I swear on Rudy's life. Rudy is my little dog. Um, like, I don't have to keep that promise. And if I did, I don't have to kill my dog, which, you know, isn't, isn't terrible. But it's like, that's not a, you don't have to keep that promise. However, in the, in the Old Testament, if you said, if I said, Danielle, we're going to have the greatest Valentine's Day ever, and we're going to go to a nice restaurant, and I'm going to get a baby. She's listening to me like this is, real. This is an illustration. Uh, and I'm going to get a babysitter, and, it's going to, and I'm going to get you flowers, and it's going to be awesome. And I swear by God's temple, like if you broke that, you were guilty of sinning. And they literally said it. So if you ever swear by the temple, you have to keep it. It's like signing a contract. And if you swear by Jerusalem, that's God's city, you have to keep it. That's like signing a contract. And if you swear by the, your own head, if, if you swear on your life, that's really important, so you have to keep it. But everything else, eh, if you break your promise, it's no big deal. And Jesus said, none of this was written so you know which promises you'd have to keep. This was all written so you know when you're lacking integrity. The spirit is, I want you to know, when you have a lack of integrity. I, I don't want you to try to figure out what you have to keep. I just want you to keep your word. And think about what you're going to do before you say anything so that your yes means yes and your no means no. Everything else, just kind of put it off. You know, we live in a world today. Let me tell you one thing that, that really angers me. And I know I'm not supposed to get angry because it could lead to murder. So it, it, may, it really upsets me. I'll say this. When I hear of or experience Christian businessmen who refuse to keep their word because of a loophole, that is wrong. Because the contract was signed in, inappropriately or, or it was delivered on the wrong day or this or that. When Christian businessmen look for loopholes instead of integrity, it's not right. And it makes our God and it makes Jesus and it makes our churches look like a bunch of phonies. Because what we're saying is, well, you know, if you just signed that, you signed the wrong page. And if you dated it, and you know, yeah, you said you're going to pay me this, but I think it's only worth this now. Listen, our integrity is more important than whatever that job entails, I promise you. And Jesus said, I don't want to teach you about breaking your promise. I want to teach you what integrity looks like. Jesus said, we have this action of physical retribution. 
you know, the, the Old Testament says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Man, if somebody hits you, hit them back. And pray to God you hit them back hard enough that they don't hit you back because then you're going to have a bit of an exchange. And Jesus said, let me, let me tell you, it really isn't about physical retribution. I wish I could teach you about not having this spirit of trying to get even. Because the spirit of getting even is an unhealthy spirit, not just in physical retribution, but in life in general. Jesus said, I'm not trying to teach you two or three things to do. I, I want to change you from the inside. You know, Monday night we were eating dinner at, at, uh, at my house. Danielle made spaghetti, and she made little breadsticks to eat with the spaghetti. And I have a son who's 12 and a daughter who's 10, and they, they, I learn a lot of life lessons through my kids. And Danielle had, had made breadsticks, and she had made eight, and there's four of us in our family, so two apiece. And this, this happens at every meal. Uh, if my 10-year-old daughter were in here, and she had a breadstick, and there were 150 people in this room, she would do her best to tear it in 150 pieces so that everyone could have a little bit of her breadstick. If Christian were in here, and there was a tray of 150 breadsticks brought in, Christian would eat as many as he wanted, and then and only then would he save the rest for later. And he wouldn't even think about anyone else in this room that needed anything. So we're sitting there, and Casey, every meal, Casey wants to make sure Christian doesn't get more than her. I mean, every meal for the last five years. I can't tell you how many times I've just wanted to knock my kids off the table because they fight every meal. So I finally had enough of it. And Christian's, you know, he's eating, and Casey looks at him and said, how many breadsticks have you had? And he, lo and he looks at her, because he just loves to egg her on, and he's like, three? And she's like, ah, oh, you know, drops her fork. Ah! That's like looking at Danielle and I. What are you, that's not fair. What are you going to do? And I said, Casey, time out. And because I'd been studying this lesson, I said, let me, let me just teach you something. I said, how many breadsticks do you want? She said, I don't know. And I said, well, you need to learn this life lesson now. Life is not fair. And life will never be fair. And most of your life... People are going to take theirs first, and if there's any left for you, then you can have some too. And your brother has proven that he doesn't care about fairness at our meal table about every time that we eat. But it's about time for you to get over it, because you know what? You're probably only going to eat two. I promise you, God will always give you what you need, but you need to quit worrying about everyone else, because this thought that life is fair, in case you, you're going to have people that don't treat you fair. You're going to have boyfriends that don't treat you fair. One day you're going to have a boss that doesn't treat you fair. You know, it's, it's just, life's not fair. So if you, can, if you can get over the spirit of feeling like everything needs to be fair, that will help you in life. Now, I could have said, just take one of mine, and now you can have three too. But Jesus said the spirit's more important than the action. And Jesus was trying to teach people that they needed to change from the inside out, not the outside in. And then Jesus presents this question of motivation because a lot of times our motivation is seen in our actions or in our aspirations, spiritually. Jesus will go on to ask in Matthew chapter 6, who's your spiritual commitment for? Why do you really do the things that you do? And there's two natural answers that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 6. He said a lot of people who are motivated by action, their motivation is really people. They want people to think well of them. They want people to think they're a good spiritual person, that they're a good righteous person. They have a friend that they want to impress or a spouse that they want to impress. And many times, all of us spiritually begin a journey through a relationship, and that's okay. But Jesus says your primary motivation eventually should be your spirit connecting to Jesus regardless of what anyone thinks. The second answer is God. Who's your spiritual commitment for? I'm committed to God. But this system of Judaism in Jesus' day built people who wanted to basically memorize and perfect these actions, 
so that people would think well of him. Nobody did that better than a man named the Apostle Paul. In the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, he said, I want you to know when it came to memorizing the actions and habits of what it meant to be a perfect Jew, I was perfect, better than anyone else that I know. But in Galatians 1, he gives us some motivation behind that perfection. In Galatians 1, he asks the church in Galatia, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? And then he says this, you need to underline this on your sermon notes. If I were still trying to please people, I would not have been a servant of Christ. See, Paul says, I perfected all these habits because I wanted people to think well of me. Perfected all these habits because I wanted people to think that I was a really good Christian. Perfected these habits so people would think of me as being honorable. But he said it really, it really wasn't for God. And you know, Jesus really, in Matthew chapter 6, he really challenges why our commitment is there to certain things. You know, our choir sang today, and I always love when our choir sings because it sounds like a hundred more people are in the room. But every time I hear the choir sing, I think back to a sermon that I heard when I was in college. And I went to college by the name of Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. And I went to a church there every Sunday morning for four years that I was in school in semester called uh, Thomas Road Baptist Church. In my junior year, one of the first Sundays of my junior year, and I don't remember many, but you'll understand why this stuck with me. My junior year, we had a guest speaker in from Arkansas. Uh, and he, was, he had just become the pastor at a very large church in Arkansas that was on television all the time. He's a very well-known TV preacher for people who watch TV preachers. Um, and he got up, and the, the choir at Thomas Road was like 250 people, and they wore the robes. They were unbelievable, and they had like blown the lid off the church that day. Got a huge standing ovation, and he came up to speak right as the choir had got done singing, and he turned and said, choir, that was unbelievable. But he said, every time I look at a choir, I think about all the trouble at my church my choir has caused me. He said, let me tell you what I'm talking about. And he had just started working at this church. He said, at our church, we have a television broadcast. It's on for the entire state of Arkansas and all, of, all over the country. And he said, that television broadcast starts each week with a soloist singing a song and then the message. And he said, you're not allowed to be a soloist unless you've been on the praise team a year. And you're not allowed to be in the praise team unless you've been in the choir for a year. And he said, what I found out when I got to the church with this big choir, but he said, the only reason anyone wanted to be in the choir was so they could be on the praise team. And the only reason anyone wanted to be on the praise team was so they could sing a solo on TV. And most of the soloists really wanted to be the worship pastor. And the worship pastor wanted to be the senior pastor. And the senior pastor couldn't wait to work a secular job, so he quit. And that's why they hired me. And he said, I met with this choir. Once I realized what was going on and saw all the dysfunction, he said, I met with them. And, and, and I just asked him one simple question. Who are you singing for? Who are you singing for? What's the motivation? Because if you're singing for Jesus, you don't care if it's in your shower or on TV. You don't care if it's in the choir loft or behind a, a microphone. If you're singing for Jesus, it doesn't matter. Let me tell you why that illustration struck me sitting there. Because that was my second Sunday serving as a small group leader in the junior high ministry of that church. And the only reason I had become a small group leader in the junior high ministry is so they'd let me preach. That's it. I did not become a small group leader for Jesus. I did not become a small group leader for the kids. I went to the youth pastor of that church after God had really moved on my heart and I thought I wanted to go into ministry. And I said, God has called me to ministry. I'd like to come preach to your students sometime. And he said, you can't preach unless you've served in my ministry for a year. And I said, what, what do you want me to do? He said, you serve as a small group leader, then one day in the future you can preach. And I said, okay. And I signed up to be a small group leader for the motivation of preaching later. My motivation was not Jesus. My motivation was not people. My motivation was me and my aspirations. 
And that man became my mentor and remains my mentor to this day. And I'll never forget one day him looking across the table. We used to meet at Hardy's at 6 a.m. every Thursday morning. And he looked and he said, Christian, when you prepare more for a message to speak to 300 people than you do for three, you prove that you're doing it for people. Because the same God is the God of three that he is 300. And one day, if you prepare more for a message to preach to 3,000 than you do to three, you're proving that you're doing it for the people. Because Christian, if your motivation is Jesus, you give your best regardless of who's in the room. It's a question of motivation. And this is what Jesus is giving us here. He's giving us a question of motivation. In Matthew chapter 6, I want you to take your Bibles, because three times in Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't do this just, just so people will think well of you. Don't do this to memorize the action. Don't do this so people will think well of you. In Matthew 6, 1, he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. He's not saying don't be righteous. He's not saying righteousness is bad. He's saying if the motivation for righteousness is so people will think well of you, that's not good enough. In Matthew chapter 6, 5, Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. Jesus isn't saying don't pray. He's saying don't pray so that others think you're a real spiritual person. Pray so you can connect to God. In Matthew chapter 6, 16, Jesus says, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. Jesus isn't saying don't fast. He's saying don't fast just so others will think you're this big spiritual person. Jesus wasn't telling me not to lead a small group. He was telling me not to lead a small group because I really wanted something else deep down. And here's the reality. After two years of leading a small group in that ministry, they finally let me preach on a Sunday morning. And I cannot remember what I said, what happened, if anyone made decisions. But the four seventh grade boys that I met with every Wednesday night, that then became four eighth graders that I met with every Wednesday night, Trevor, Kip, Josh, and Josh, I'll remember them and their stories and their school and those relationships forever. See, when I focused on Jesus and I did it for him, and I just poured in the lives of the other people. It created great spiritual memories, but I had to fix my motivation. And Jesus says, if you're going to really think different and live differently, man, your Christianity has to go from your head to your heart. If we, if we add last week to this week, what we're trying to do in, in this series is we're trying to connect your spirit to God. We're not trying to connect your schedule to God. We're not trying to connect your life to God. We're trying to connect your spirit. We're trying to connect your soul to God because when your soul connects to God, you become a different person. Not when your head connects, but when your soul connects, you become a different person. And I don't know when this happened for me exactly, but I just know at some point my soul, my soul truly became alive in the day-to-day -day things. You know, if I wasn't a Christian and I didn't believe the Bible and I hadn't done great research on the Old Testament and New Testament and believe you could trust, if I didn't worship the God of Israel through the cross of Jesus, I, I do not believe I'd be an atheist. I believe I'd, I'd worship Mother Nature. I believe I'd worship Earth because I've, there are some things on planet Earth that just make me feel a little more spiritual. Like when I'm in the Rocky Mountains, I don't know why, but when I'm in the Rocky Mountains, I just feel a little closer to God than when I'm in Kansas City. There's just something about the beauty of the mountains. When I'm on a beach someplace, 
looking out across the ocean. I don't know about you, but my spirit just feels a little more alive sometimes on a beach than it does in my home in Kansas City. When I get out in the middle of nowhere and it's pitch black and I can see all the stars, not just a few stars, but all the stars, like something comes alive inside of me spiritually and connects. And one day I realized that connection was a God thing. And I'll tell you how it happened. One, one day I, I often, and Daniel, tell you, it annoys her because I don't sing well, but I like to sing. And I grew up singing the hymns. So every morning I'm singing some hymn through our house and she's yelling at me and telling me to be quiet. But I was singing this great hymn, How Great Thou Art. And I thought about what, what happened in me when I got in the Rockies or on the beach or what happened to me on a beautiful starry night. And I thought about the words of this song, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my, not voice. The author of that song did not say, then sings my voice. He said, then sings my soul. My soul has come alive to what God is doing. And I realized when I was going over that one day, I thought, what has happened to me when I'm in the Rockies, when I'm on, a, when I'm on the beach looking at the ocean, when I'm, when I'm on a starry night, what has happened is my soul has become alive to who God is. And I realized that my Christianity is not a pattern of life that my head has determined for me, but it's a change of heart that my reality of God has awakened within me. My Christianity is not what I decide to do on Sunday morning. My Christianity is who I've become in my heart day after day. My Christianity is not a schedule of rules that I decide to keep. It's the person that I'm becoming as I just day after day live my life. And this is what Jesus is saying. Until it goes from your head to your heart, your soul doesn't wake up and become alive. But when your soul wakes up and become alive, everything changes from the sunset to the mountains to the ocean to the stars to the to the hymns, to the worship music, to feeling like you have to get even, to, to being angry all the time, to having lust over stuff, to, to having integrity. When the soul wakes up, everything changes. And Jesus said, you got to get it from here to here. Because when the soul wakes up, everything changes. Christianity is not a pattern of life that our head determines for us. It's a change of heart that our reality of God awakens within us. If we can catch that truth, that can change our life. And then secondly, as I read through Matthew chapter 5 and 6, I realize that real Christianity, I realize that becoming a disciple, I realize that thinking differently and living differently happens when people make the move from their seat to their feet. And here's what I mean by this. The primary mode of doing church for most American Christians is their rear end in a chair sitting and watching the show. And Jesus said, when you really become alive spiritually, your Christianity moves from your seat to the primary part of your body that works Christianity being the feet. At some point in the Christian life, everyone has to transition from come and see to come and serve. Everyone. If you were to, to, to just study the life of Jesus and the ministry that he did, the three-year cycle of Jesus' ministry, the first year, all Jesus asked anyone to do was to come and see. He asked his first disciples, come and follow me. And they said, where are you going? What are you going to do? And he said, come and see. And for a year, he just said, check it out. See if it, 
See if it connects with your heart. See if it connects with your life. Spend a year just really getting to know Jesus. But then the second year of Jesus' ministry, he said, come and serve. He got his group together and he said, okay, now it's your turn. You've watched for a year, now it's your turn. I'm going to divide you two by two. He had 70 of them. And he said, I'm going to send you into towns all over the place. And I want you to do what you've seen me do. Go serve people. Go help people. Find sick people and pray for them and find people who are hungry and figure out how to get them some food and find people who need some clothes and do a clothing drive. Go help people. Go serve. Then come back and tell me how, how it worked. And then the third year of his ministry, as he was getting ready to go to the cross, he said, you've come and seen. You've come and served. Now, if you're going to go the distance with me, you have to come and die. Because that ultimately is, is what's going to happen. You're, you're going to trade, trade your life for me and your life. And I don't know that God is asking everyone in this room to, to come and die today yet. But I know that there are too many of us who've been coming, we've been coming seeing for way too long. And it's time now to, to, come and, to come and serve. And I see Matthew chapter 5 and I hear in this Jesus kind of challenging us to when we're going to start serving people through his church. In Matthew 5, verses 46 and 47, Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Jesus is saying, listen, everyone serves people they care about. Parents serve their kids. Kids serve their parents. At least maybe your kids do. I'm hoping my kids get there one day. Uh, we serve our friends. We serve our neighbors. We serve people we care about. Jesus said the things that make Christians different is they serve people they don't even know. They just find a spot to serve and, and they go. Their, their Christianity has moved from their seat, sit and listen to their feet, come and do something for someone else. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. I read this this week as I was studying through Matthew 5, 46 and 47. I came across Matthew 6, 19 and 21 and I saw how they connected. And I, I kind of flipped in my mind to Matthew 25 where Jesus said, anything you do for anyone, it's like you're doing it for me even if you just give someone a cup of cold water. And I thought, Lord, you are, basically you're telling us every time we serve, we're making a spiritual investment in our heavenly bank account. And it's like God spoke to me. And I'll tell you what I thought about. Just sitting in my office, if you reach inside your bulletin and pull out this time card, here's what I felt like God spoke to me about this week as I was studying through this. Pull out this time card and put it in your hand. Because, listen, I'm a very simple person. And unless I can understand something very simply, like I don't get it at all. So I hear people say all the time, I, I like how simply you teach. And I say, well, that's because I'm stupid. And if I, you know, that's like I have to break it down that way. So I'm trying to understand Matthew 6, 19. And here's how I understand it. Jesus says, listen, everyone has a spiritual time card. And every day of every week, you can be clocking in and out spiritually. But you don't get paid until you get to heaven. You don't get rewarded. I remember my first job, 14 years old, working at a sawmill in Bainbridge, Ohio. We used to cut boards, and then the young guys like us would have to stack them because we weren't allowed around the blades and move them around the yard and put them on trucks so they could go build houses. It's the first time I got to know what a time clock was. I don't know if they even still have these because everything is so electronic now, but I used to have to go get my time card with my name on it, stick it in the slot, and hit the button, and then when I clocked out, I'd have to put it in there. And if I didn't clock in or out, I might not get credit for the work that I did. And I thought, I wonder how many people in our church have a blank spiritual time card for 2013. Like you have, according to Scripture, you have an eternal bank account. 
Like you have one, according to Matthew 6, 19 through 21, as I understand it. The question is, have you invested anything in it? Because here's the deal. The 10 minutes you read your Bible last night, in, out, I believe you're going to be rewarded for it spiritually. The, the two hours you came and did set up, or the hour you'll stay after church and do teardown, I believe it's going to be written on your time card, and I believe one day you're, you're going to be paid for that. The time you spent on the phone ministering to somebody, that five-minute call you made to pray for somebody, I believe it's written down. I believe every act that anyone ever does spiritually is written down according to Matthew 25, Matthew 6, 19, Matthew 5, 46, 47. I believe God's watching it all. And the sad thing is we have a lot of Christians, this is what their spiritual time card looks like. And if we would lay out our spiritual time card next to our favorite sitcom time card, like we would not want anyone else in the room if those two were laid side by side for some of us. And if we laid out our spiritual time card versus our hobbies or extracurricular activities time card, we would not want anyone looking at those because how much time we spend to the neglect of this. And I thought, Lord, give us a church full of people who get it. And who understand what they do today counts for eternity and will be rewarded in eternity. And God, let us load up our spiritual time card with a minute here, 10 minutes here. Yesterday I met with 40 of our key leaders who lead people to our church for five hours. And I thought all of them stamped their time card yesterday, five hours. I don't know what the hourly wage is in heaven. I'm sure it's not currency because from what I understand we don't need money in heaven. I don't know what the hourly wage is in eternity. But I do believe I know what the hourly wage for zero hours is. And I believe it's zero. So we are a church that if, if Jesus is going to move from our head to our heart, eventually Jesus is going to move us from our seat to our feet, and we're going to begin, according to the Sermon on the Mount, serving others and laying up treasure for ourselves in heaven because of that. Because here's the problem. If we, if we want to be action-based rather than spirit-based, Jesus says we have a standard problem, which means this. There's a standard we cannot meet. Jesus gives us his standard for actions, and it's a fail for all of us. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus ends Matthew 5 saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Listen, I don't know about you, but on my best days, on my very best days, I might be at 90%. I've never had a 100% spiritual day in my life, which means I've never had a 100% spiritual week 100% spiritual month, 100% spiritual year, 100% spiritual decade in my life. I've not even had a 100% sermon this morning because I told you I get angry at things and Jesus says don't get angry. Like, we can't meet that standard. Jesus says if you're going to be action-based, here's, here's the standard. And it's like, <laughs> okay, Lord, that's not going to work. So what are we going to do? You know, David recognized God's standard. And in Psalm 51, after David had gone through a horrible time of sin, David realizing that he could never meet God's standard. And Jesus, when presenting his standards, what Jesus was trying to do was to help his listeners understand that they were broken spiritually, but he could never do that. They would, they would never admit that they weren't good enough spiritually. Jesus was trying to get them to understand that they couldn't meet the standard. They were broken and needed help. But David in Psalm 51, he understood that. And David in Psalm 51 said, My sacrifice, O God, you can interchange the word sacrifice for offering, gift, what I have to offer you. David says, What I have to offer you, God, is a broken spirit. That's it. All I can do is admit that I'm broken. A broken and contrite heart, God, because you'll not despise it. You won't turn me. If I try to present myself perfect, I fail. If I present myself broken, 
then the Bible says that there's a spirit solution to brokenness. God says, brokenness I can, I can work with. In Mark chapter 2, when, he, when Jesus was trying to get his hearers to understand that they were broken spiritually, they told Jesus, there's nothing wrong with this with us spiritually. And Mark 2.17 says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says it's the sick that need a doctor. It's broken people who need a spirit solution. And if people will just admit they're broken, they can be fixed. And the truth is when broken people begin to realize that God can fix them, their Christianity changes. When broken people begin to realize that God can fix them and will fix them and has fixed them, their Christianity changes. Now, here's the interesting thing about things that get broken. You know, I, I played every sport I could play growing up, but the one I spent the most time into uh, in was a, was a pretty violent sport um, called football. Uh, I met someone from England this week I, that I had a pastor's lunch with, and he reminded me that it's American football, not real football that they play in Europe. They play with their feet. So he said, no, you played American football, chap. Called me chap, which was actually kind of cool. I was like, all right, thanks. Um, but... I played, I played a lot of American football, um, and I got dinged up a lot. I've broken a lot of things. Like, I've broken every bone in my left arm. I've broken these two. I've broken this one. Uh, I currently, my, my labrum is not even attached in my left shoulder. I need to have surgery on it. Um, I've broken a couple fingers on this hand and one on this hand. I've broken my right ankle. I've torn ligaments in my knee. I've had six concussions. I mean, I've, I kind of went through the ringer of playing football through college. But the only injury that really scared me, because it was the only one that was going to impact something really important for me, was when I broke my hand right before my senior year. And I was playing defensive back at a 7-on-7 camp, tried to break up a pass, and I, I just hit somebody weird, and my hand just snapped, popped. I mean, I knew it was broken the minute that it happened because of the sound, and then I couldn't move my hand at all. And I went to the doctor, and I had six weeks before my senior year football season was going to start. And he said, you know, six weeks will be time to heal it. If we, you know, if we cast it now and take care of it, six weeks you get the cast off and you can, start, you can start playing again. And I said, well, in six weeks, is like when I get the cast off, is it going to be so weak that it breaks again? And I'll never forget this, sitting in an orthopedist office in Columbus, Ohio. He said, Christian, here's the interesting thing about broken bones. He said, when broken bones heal, they're actually the strongest bones in your body. You actually are more likely to break a bone that hasn't been broken yet than one that has been broken. Because when a broken bone heals, it, it just continues, it, it wraps itself with calcium and calcium. And a little hard bump develops. And you can literally, you can still feel the bump in my hand today. This probably is the strongest bone in either one of my hands because it's been broken and healed. And what Jesus is saying to us is that broken people who have been healed are actually the very strongest members of the body of Christ. People whose lives have been trashed and brought back together are actually the strongest bones in the body of our church. And Jesus said, if you could realize that your brokenness will eventually be your strength, you could bring your brokenness to me and, I, and I'll fix you. But then here's what happens to broken people who have been fixed. When I was at Liberty, one of the girls on our campus um, got diagnosed as having bone marrow cancer. And they did a campus-wide um, kind of bone marrow 
uh, drive where you could go and donate to see if you were a match to help her save her life. And literally everyone on campus and people from all over the surrounding counties gave a portion of their blood to see if they could help her. When broken people spiritually get restored, the answer for broken people today is in your DNA. And when you serve, what you're doing is you're, when you serve, you're giving a part of your spiritual DNA to someone who's broken spiritually so they can become healthy like you are. You're sharing your healthy spiritual selves with them so that it can fix their brokenness. And we have two types of people in this room. Those who are broken right now, and there are many of you in the room today who, if you were to describe your state on a checklist, you would say, I'm emotionally broken. I'm physically broken. I am, my marriage is broken. My relationship with my kids is broken. I'm financially broken. There's a lot of broken people in this room today. But there are those who have been broken and fixed. And technically, you're supposed to be the strongest people in here because broken bones that have healed are stronger than those who have never been broken. And what Scripture tells us, what Jesus is telling us in Matthew 5 and 6 is when broken people begin to realize that God can fix them, their Christianity moves from their head to their heart, becomes real form on the inside because they've been there, done that, and their Christianity moves from their seat to their feet because they realize they have in their spiritual DNA the answer for someone else's brokenness. And that's why they greet and shake hands. They're sharing their spiritual DNA that's been healed. That's why they work on the parking team. They're sharing their spiritual DNA that's been healed. That's why they help with babies in the nursery and kids, and that's why they set up and tear down. They're trying to figure out how to share their spiritual DNA that's been healed so that broken people can be made healthy. So here's really one of the goals of this message. If you reach inside your bulletin, there's this card that says, Get Plugged In. We firmly believe at our church, you're not living the life God has called you to live until you're serving God's church, according to Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13. It's a part of every person's spiritual journey. And if you're in our church and you've been here a while, it, listen, you may be brand new and you may be so broken that your seat barely works. You just keep sitting and letting us minister to you. But if you've been coming seeing for a while, it's time to come and serve now. It's time to go to the next step and to share some of your healthy spiritual DNA so the people who are broken can be touched by your effort of ministry within our church. So here's my goal for every person in here who's not currently serving at our church. I, I want you to take this form, and if you're already plugged in and serving, you don't even need to fill this out. Thank you for what you're doing right now. But it's time to pass the baton to some new people. I want you to put your name on here, the date, your birthday, your email, your phone. And I want you to check one of these areas, no more than two. And here's what it means. This does not mean you have to serve in this area next week. Doesn't even mean you have to serve in this area next month. Technically, we don't even need you. We have so many volunteers right now that Sunday by Sunday goes off perfectly. But we believe that as our church grows and our people grow, we have to make room for more people to help. So I, I want you to just read through these things and think, I could maybe do that, I could maybe do that. And I want you to check a box or two and here's what this means for you. See, what's going to happen if I do this? Some point in the next week or two, somebody's going to call you, say, hey, I read your card. I serve in this ministry. I'd love for you to meet me one Sunday before church, hang out, see how everything works, watch it, and then tell me what you think. 
And then if you like it sometime this spring, we'll put you on the schedule. This is, we need nothing immediate from anyone. But my belief, as I read through what Jesus says, thinking differently and living differently looks like, when I think about this spiritual time card that this week has the opportunity to be investing something spiritually, I just believe that every healthy person needs to be, needs to be serving. I, I believe it's biblical. We all serve those that we're close to. I believe it's time to start serving broken people through our church. So my goal is that we'll get 10 or 12 or 20 of these thrown in the offering plate, and that sometime between now and Easter, which is April 20th, you can try out what volunteering looks like at our church. If you don't like it, we'll, we'll try another area for you. But I believe for you, for our church and for God's kingdom, it's going to be a powerful thing when, when you get engaged. So, two thoughts. First and foremost, I want to pray for the people in the room today who are broken. Because that's the reality of our church. We pray every week that God will send us broken people. Because we think we have pretty wide arms to receive them without judging them. And they just try to, try to help nurse them back to spiritual health. And then I want to pray for all of those of you who will dare to go from come and see to come and serve that you can find your right place and some right relational connections at our church so you can get engaged in serving God's church well. So can you bow your heads and we can pray together?